The sermon this morning is on the luminous life. And before I read the text, as you've noticed I sometimes do, I would really like to contextualize it. Because my guess is that you weren't in John 7 in this last sermon that you probably listened to. And so we're going to be in John 8, 12 through 30. And John 8, 12 through 30 occurs during something called the Feast of Booths. Um, for those of you who know, or Sukkoth is another, is another term for it. And it was a massive celebration that took place over the span of eight days. And it was one of the most joyous feasts of the people of God. And it was instituted as a tribute to remind the people of God how their Lord had freed them from their captors in Egypt and how he led them through the wilderness to their land. Furthermore, since the Feast of Booths was a reminder of the time that the Lord freed them from their captivity in Israel, it also became a feast where the people looked forward to the expected reign of the Messianic King. For this reason, Jesus, throughout chapter 7 and 8 of the Gospel of John, points to himself in his teachings as that very Messiah, oftentimes with references, cultural references, to what's occurring during the Feast of Booths. And now you're probably wondering, okay, well, why is this important? How does this help? Well, there's this historic tradition that occurred during the Feast of Booths that we can observe in the Mishnah, which is the oral traditions of the people of God um, around the 3rd century B.C., Uh, moving forward. And what we read in that will actually help us understand why Jesus in chapter 8 claims to be the light of the world and what it actually means that Jesus is the light of the world. During the Feast of Booths in the evenings, this is from the Mishnah, when the sun went down, every night during the feast, they would light these lamps Now, normally in the early Greco-Roman period, lamps were small. Imagine your grandmother's gravy boat or your gravy boat, if you're a grandmother and have a gravy boat. That's okay. Um, Imagine a little gravy boat. They look a bit like that. Ceramic, uh, clay, and you'd fill them with oil. And out of the spout, you'd have a a little wick or a piece of fabric, and you'd light that, and that'd be your lamp. But the lamps that they used during the Feast of Booths were not like this. They had these massive golden candelabra that they would mount on the top of tall poles with about a half a gallon of oil. And they would tear strips of cloth from their garments to light the candelabra. And these lamps produced tons of light. And then the men, this is from the mission, the men of piety and good works would dance through the night holding and juggling burning torches as they praised God and recited his word and sang to music. And this would continue in a procession until they reached the gate, facing towards the Holy of Holies in the temple. And they would say, we are to God and our eyes are to God. And this tradition with the candelabra, was developed in remembrance of Exodus 13, where the Lord led his people out of slavery through the dark wilderness towards the Red Sea 
by going before them as a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. It's in this context that we're going to see that Jesus states that he is the light of the world. During the Feast of Booths, with a joyous celebration under the lights of the candelabra, in remembrance of that day when the Lord led his people out of slavery, through the dark wilderness, by a pillar of fire. With that context in mind, we can read God's word. Please stand for the reading of God's word. You know, I'm doing this so often, I forget what churches do what in their liturgy, so thanks for rolling with it. All right. This is the word of our God. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. One second, sorry. Oh boy. I might have swallowed a mosquito. Sorry. I went camping with a bunch of students and the smoke is having an impact. All right. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, 
And I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Oh, thank you. This is the word of our Lord. And this halls has many contaminants on it. I might actually pass on this one. There's some pocket lint. You may be seated. Oh, that's pretty fun. I do appreciate the sentiment, though. It's true. There is. Okay, let's pray. Father, you are light, and in you is no darkness whatsoever. Many of us can at times, or still do, believe this, and yet we walk in darkness. We put on darkness as an old coat, as though we've been clothed, even though we've been clothed in righteousness as your children. Help us, Father. Illuminate your word to us. Equip us by the work of your spirit in the finished work of Christ. And help us to know you more deeply and follow you all of our days. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work this morning as we bring our praises before you and receive your word together. Jesus, we thank you for teaching and living and being the true light. We thank you for leading us. Amen. Okay. So I'll be frank. There are three points in this sermon. The first one's very long. The next two are very short. And those of you who like to know what the points are so you can write them down, or so that you can know where we're going, they're this. The first point is looking at the light of the world. Looking at the light of the world. The second point is looking along the light of the world. Looking along the light of the world. And the third point is the light raised up. We'll start with that first point, looking at the light of the world. Exodus 13, as we have said, is the primary background for understanding Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. So we're going to be referencing it regularly throughout this point. However, it's not the only background to Jesus' claim. Isaiah, the Psalms, Proverbs, and many other books reference notions of light and darkness that would have been intuitively recognized or brought to remembrance by a people who were saturated in Old Testament imagery. So as we consider what the light of the world means with reference to the pillar of fire in Exodus 13, we will also look to other allusions that would certainly have been included in the cultural imaginations of the original audience. And for those of you who heard me say illusions, uh, that's not what I meant. Illusions with an eye is like a magician. You know, he deceives the audience with a certain image 
I'm talking about allusions, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N-S. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, it's basically a term that means a word or phrase or idiom that has an implied reference or hint to something else. Something that triggers the cultural imaginations of the original audience. So with that cleared up, let's move on. There are four things I think that we can pull primarily from Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. First, his claim to be the light of the world is a claim of divinity. It is a claim of divinity. Second, his claim that to be the light of the world is a claim for the scope of his mission. The scope of his mission. Third, His claim to be the light of the world is a claim of pastoral guidance to his people. And fourth, it is a claim to be the Redeemer. Let's start with that first claim. In claiming that Jesus is the light of the world, because it's not intuitive, it really isn't. In claiming that Jesus is the light of the world, in association with the pillar of fire, he is saying first and foremost that he is God that he led the Israelites to safety. Now, that pillar of fire which guided the people of God through the wilderness is a fascinating image for Jesus to choose because in Exodus 13 and 14, where the pillar of fire is referenced, in both of those texts, it actually says that the Lord was in the pillar and in the cloud. His very manifest presence was with his people in that form. The original audience would have recognized this. Of course they took issue with what he was saying. But other Old Testament allusions that are reminiscent of this text are as follows. One might also think of the glory of God that passed by Moses on Mount Sinai, the one that left Moses' face quite literally shining. Or of Isaiah 10:17, which says... The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. Or of the burning bush from Exodus 3, from which God spoke to Moses. These associations and the initial context of Jesus' claim and statement would leave no doubt in the mind of the audience. Jesus is claiming to be God by claiming to be the light of the world. But not only does Jesus claim divinity, this statement portrays the scope of his mission. Note that Jesus does not just say he's the light of the Israelites. (laughs) No, he says that he is the light of the world. In fulfillment of Isaiah 49, 6, there's a lot of Old Testament allusions, and I cut out like half of them in writing this sermon. So if you want to go and just do a word search for light, you'll have fun with that. But Isaiah 49.6 is fulfilled in Jesus. Isaiah 49.6 says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now, the pillar of fire was a unique historical occurrence to be followed only by those Jews being freed from slavery in Egypt, crossing the wilderness. But Jesus is the pillar of fire that never goes out, who is available to all people 
and whose scope is the entirety of the world. For the world and all things in it belong to him. But not only is it a statement of divinity or the scope of mission. Third, this claim is also a claim that he will guide his people. In Exodus 13, the pillar of fire did something. It lit the way so that the Israelites could travel by night. It was bright and easy to follow, and it made their path clear. It guided the Israelites, and so too does Jesus claim to be serving as our guide in this text. Now, there are too many Old Testament allusions, especially for this point to consider, so I'm going to limit myself only to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 says this. It says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh, that is my name. I give my glory to no other. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. Isaiah, in his vision that he portrays to the people in chapter 42, is seeing something that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And Christ lays claim to that. But not only does this statement include divinity, scope of mission, guidance, but also forth, it's a claim of salvation. The pillar of light in Exodus 13 was the salvation of the people. Jesus came also to be our salvation. The ultimate salvation from bondage and slavery, salvation from ourselves, salvation from sin, salvation from enmity with God, salvation from death, salvation from darkness. And these strains... I could go on and on with all the Old Testament allusions for this, but these strains and these aspects are all present in the claims of Jesus in this text. And it's either the most spectacular, wonderful claim that could be made, or it's the most bizarre and absurd. But it's because of this that the Jews also question the validity of his claim, and we can talk more about that later. But the point here is that we would take a moment to look at the light of the world, and understand just what is included in his statement. Because when we read the New Testament, we can sometimes glaze over these phrases and forget that there is a world of information behind them. So now is our transition to our second point. You might be wondering why I've said uh, we must look at the light of the world and along the light of the world. Well, like many things I say that are uh, actually good, uh, it comes from C.S. Lewis. <laughs> it comes from his essay, Meditations in a Toolshed, 
where he distinguishes between looking at a particular problem and looking along a particular problem. And here's a long quote from Meditations in a Tool Shed to help get the picture of what he's saying. He says this. He said, I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in this place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam of light, not seeing things by it. And then I moved, so the beam fell on my eyes, and instantly the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, I saw no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. Now, to look at Christ is not enough. We must also learn to look along him. One can look at Christ and have all the right theologies. Their orthodoxy can be spectacular, and they can have all their points in the right places. But if they have not learned to live in light of it, it is ultimately meaningless. We must also have orthopraxy, which is to say right living. We must also look along him and see what he illuminates. So we're going to read verse 12 and then verses 21 through 27 in thinking about looking along the light of the world. They say this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then 21 through 27 says this. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you're from below, and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. Those Jews present who looked at his claims did not believe Jesus. They were able to look 
at him, but they were not able to look along with him. They failed to see what it was that he illuminated, to see how good and true and beautiful the light of the world really is. Which is why in their rejection of the light of the world, they have by their own will and volition chosen a life without that light. Those, however, who did believe in Jesus accepted not only the challenge of looking at the light, but also looking along it and looking at what he illuminated. So just as our text today is an expansion of Exodus 13, so too does the author John later in 1 John 1, 5 through 10, expand the text that we have before us. If you're on your phone or you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you're welcome to. It's 1 John 1, 5 through 10. Uh, If you don't, that's also okay. I'll read it. I hear some flipping, so I'll give you a second. 1 John 5, 1 through 10 says this. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, however, that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. To know Christ is not just to have right theology. It really is a relationship that we're invited into, that we get to live in light of, as he guides our path, and as we know him more and more, so too do we find that throughout our lives, sometimes our behaviors don't change in the ways that we expected them to or wanted them to. Amen? (laughs) But certainly the way we see ourselves, the way we see one another, the way we see society, and the way we see the world begins to change. The way we see God begins to change. Looking at Christ is not enough. We must also look along him. But we cannot do this with our own strength. Ultimately, we have to have this done for us by the work of the Spirit. Which brings us to our final point. The light raised up. Now, the Jews in this passage took issue with Jesus' claim that he's the light of the world. And of course they did. They understood what it meant. 
Their critique, though, of his claim concerned the fact that he bore witness to himself. But just because someone bears witness about something alone does not mean that it wasn't necessarily false. And Jesus, in his response to them, then leans on what will come to pass as a proof for what he is saying in the moment. Jesus engages their skepticism and invites critical thinking. And he does so in verses 28 through 30. He is patient with his audience. And he says this. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. For Jesus, the act of being lifted up, which is to say the act of being hung on a Roman crucifix, was enough proof for his audience. You might remember the narrative that went along with what happened when he died on the cross. The sun was blocked, an earthquake occurred, and the temple veil, which was quite thick, in the Holy of Holies tore during Christ's death. And for Jesus, this was an appropriate proof to his audience. Think on the confession of the Roman soldier who recognized that certainly this was the Son of God. But the lifting up of the light of the world was not only a proof, it was the solution. In being lifted up, he ushered in his kingdom in a new way. It was like lifting a beacon on a hill, like lifting an oil lamp in procession of worship. He currently reigns, and his descent of glory on the cross was his coronation. Now, I don't know about you, but this makes me think of another place in the New Testament where the light of the world is mentioned. And I'm thinking primarily of Revelation 21 and 22. Now, the image painted... For the audience in Revelation 21 and 22 is this, where John describes his vision that he's seen. And in this vision, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. And in the vision, God comes down from the heavens and he dwells with his people. He wipes away the tears of his people. And justice comes with permanence. Sorrow and pain and death have gone. He makes all things new. And there's no longer a need for the moon or the sun because the glory of God's manifest presence gives the light to his people. And the lamp suspended in the heavens of the new earth is the lamb. By his light 
in the new heavens and the new earth, all of the people live and dance and feast. Now, just as the people of Israel danced and feast and sang under the candelabra at the Feast of Booths, so too are we invited to sing and dance and feast in the light of the world hung high for all to see, suspended in the heavens as a living sacrifice, seated at the right hand of God the Father as the salvation for God's own enemies. And we may find as we dance and as we sing, as we feast, as we live, as we love, as we repent, that we ourselves become lights to our neighbors. And people begin to see Christ to some small degree through us. This is the luminous life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you showed up for your people. That you did not just leave us with rituals, but that the rituals themselves pointed to something actually occurring. And that something that was waited for has come. We thank you for your son, Christ, who came to redeem his enemies to himself, who gave his very blood to make us children of God. We thank you that you have not left us in the darkness of our own ignorance, the darkness of wanting to live our own lives in our own way, how we want. We thank you for bringing us into the light to learn and to live as you have designed us to live. Spirit, help us to walk with respect to these things that we have received. Help us to live luminous lives, we pray. Amen.